Hey, welcome back to our Mark series. We have a ton of work to get through today because we're going through the whole of chapter six in the book of Mark. And um, so basically as a bit of a recap, we have covered two blocks of four things that we have covered. Jesus giving four parables back to back. And then we've had four mighty deeds that Jesus performed back to back. And then we find ourselves in chapter six, which is a bit of a shift in what is happening in the storyline. So let's start off reading the first six verses of Mark chapter six. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his own town, among his relatives and his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Remember, we had an uninterrupted view of four parables and four mighty deeds that Jesus spoke and performed. Here we see him teaching and also performing these mighty deeds here in his hometown. And the result is rejection. The result is people pushing him away. And a couple of things that I do want to point out. And the first is that the people, the crowd was offended. The word is offended. The Greek word for this word that is translated offended is skandalizo. Uh, and the implication of this word is to stumble, to entrap. With the result is that the person deserting one that they should be trusting and obeying. This offense that they took caused them to not place their trust, not obey the things that Jesus was teaching. We need to remember that whatever Jesus says and does is meant to demand a response from us. Remember that it's not just hearing, but it's hearing and moving towards or away from what Jesus is saying. A decision needs to be made. And when he comes to his hometown, their perspective of Jesus, their familiarity with his roots caused them to stumble and to refuse to place their trust in Jesus. See, people can be seeing the same thing that Jesus is doing. We can be reading the same Bible. We can be reading the same account. But because of the perspective that we hold, we can choose different things. We can choose to reject and move away like the people of his hometown did or to move closer to him. Remember that when we move away from Jesus, as much as he is God and he can do whatever he wants. God seems to choose to work with people that want to work with him. And therefore, Jesus could not do many miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. So that's the idea of offense. Does Jesus offend you? What is your perspective of Jesus? Is it one that helps propel you towards him to trust and obey him? Or are you holding him at arm's length? The second word that I want to point out in this section is the word that Jesus used for honor. He said that a prophet is without honor except uh, is not without honor except in his home 
town. The word honor means to a valuing by which a price is fixed. In other words, the people did not see the value of Jesus for their lives. They were amazed. They 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 were like blown away by what Jesus was teaching and performing, but they still went. That's not valuable for me. You see, in our Western mindset, quite often we think that value is something that is already set. We don't see value as something that that we, through our perspective, can determine. Why do people choose to get married to one person? Well, because they see the value of that particular relationship. That is not too different with our relationship with Jesus. As much as Jesus is can and does do a Amazing, wonderful miracles teaches us the way to truly live. The value of Jesus in our lives is something that we perceive and that we determine for ourselves in determining whether we accept and commit or whether we reject. Again, his hometown chose to reject, and this rejection of Jesus and the gospel is the first of two rejections that are recorded in this chapter that we are reading today. We're going to skip ahead of a little section that we will come back to in a moment, and we're going to head to verses fourteen to twenty-nine. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus's name had become well known. Some were saying John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said he is Elijah, and still others claim he is a prophet, like one of the prophets from long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, "John, who I beheaded, has been raised from the dead." For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, who he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, "It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife." So Herodias nursed the grudge against John and wanted to kill him, but she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled. Yet he liked to listen to him. Is this whole idea of being amazed and, and all this wonder, but not really truly wanting to commit? He, 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 his ears were tickled, but his heart was not moving. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, "Ask me for anything you want, and I will give it to you." And he promised her with an oath, "Whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom." All for a dance. Hmm. She went out and said to her mother, "What shall I ask for?" The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once, the girl hurried into the king with a request. "I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter." The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner to, with orders to bring John's head. The man went. They had a John in the prison and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. So here we see that John the Baptist had been beheaded by Herod. A few quick notes: Herod is not technically a king; he simply called himself that. Herod and his wife Herodias seem to mirror、uh, a, couple, a king and his wife、uh, from the Old Testament, from from Israel scriptures, and their names are. Ahab 
and Jezebel, Ahab was a truly wicked king who did uh, just unspeakable terror <clears throat> during his reign. And his wife was, um, well, the name Jezebel still kind of sounds evil and wicked to us. And that's because of who she was in the Bible. And so uh, the, uh, King Ahab and his wife, they reigned during the time that the prophet Elijah ministered. Both Elijah and John called out their king's sins. Both had queens that came after their heads, only that Herodias was successful in doing so. The reference to Elijah in this passage is very important. <coughs> the reference to Elijah in this passage is very important. In Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 to 6, uh, 5 to 6 it says, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. John the Baptist is this Elijah that was sent to the new generation of Jewish people, heeding his message, the gospel, to repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, to look to Jesus for salvation. That is a message that is meant to bring reconciliation, meant to bring hope, meant to bring life. And rejection, though, would bring destruction. This was something that the prophets of old had already spoken and this is the second rejection that is recorded in Mark chapter 6. Remember the story so far Jesus had, had been teaching and preaching and, and we know that his preaching and teaching demands a response and chapter 6 gives us a sense of what is to take place uh, as we continue on in the book of Mark. There is this theme of rejecting the Messiah the, uh, and this rejection means that the judgment that is to come is warranted. It is not like God had not tried to bring people and uh, prophets and, and, and reconciliation and, and, and people to turn around. God had spent millennia, years trying to turn people to them, but their hearts were too hard. And so God had forewarned the Israelites to receive the Messiah, to receive the gospel, but they had not. So John, uh, sorry, Mark chapter 6 is this turning point, and we understand rejection is a theme of Jesus' life. Now, I do want to jump back to verses 6b uh, to 13, and let's just read through that. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village, calling the twelve to him. He began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except the staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave the town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. So remember that this little passage came right after Jesus was rejected by his hometown. And so what he does in the midst of rejection, you know, there's a sandwich, a, a rejection sandwich here. The rejection of Jesus, the rejection of John the Baptist, and, and therefore the rejection of the gospel. And in the middle of those two, we have a, a passage where Jesus sends out the twelve. And he tells them, he gives them authority uh, to go and to bring the gospel 
further. Isn't it amazing that this theme of rejection uh, in the middle of all the, uh, all our response to reject Jesus, to reject God, to push away his good news, uh, to, to, to reject salvation, to reject reconciliation to him. Jesus sends more people out to bring the gospel further than he could as one man. That is an absolutely, it should be mind-blowing to us that God would continue to try to pursue us in the midst of rejection. And, and just a quick note, Jesus sends the 12 out two by two. We are never meant to minister. We are never meant to be going out by ourselves. Uh, the, the gospel is very clear. The Bible is very clear. There is strength in, in cooperation. There is strength in partnerships. And so before you go out and do whatever God is calling you to do, who are you partner with? That's a very important question for you to ask yourself. Now, Jesus tells his disciples to go and to expect hospitality and to expect people to welcome them and then when they are welcome to minister in that place because they have been welcomed in. However, he also gives them this instruction that when they are rejected, and so here we go, as his disciples, as we are sent out into this world, we are to expect rejection. Rejection is something that we all need to get comfortable with. It is at a very important uh, and unfortunately uh, is a necessary part of our Christian walk. But when we are rejected, we are to shake the dust off our feet against them. That's what Jesus is saying to his disciples. So what does this mean? Now, in Jewish custom, this whole idea of being clean, about being pure uh, before coming God, uh, before being presented to God is a very important thing. And so the religious leaders taught um, the, the people that when they go and they leave Israel and then they come back to Israel, before they step foot into God's land, they are to shake off the dust of their feet because they are not to bring Gentile territory into their clean territory. That was uh, a custom that uh, Jewish people were abiding by. To, to shake off the dust was a sign of separation. It was to say, I am not those people. I am Jewish. This is now my land. Uh, this are my people. In that way, Jesus could have been indicating that when the disciples shake the dust off the feet, even though they are in Jewish territories, they are saying, I have brought the gospel to you. You have rejected it, and I am now not going to be a part of the judgment that befalls you. This is a very important concept for us to take into, my, into our mind, that, that, that rejection is such a huge part of our culture. We, we hate rejection. No one likes being rejected. And, and I wonder, how do we handle rejection? especially from the point of view of being carriers of the gospel. And when I was reflecting on this, I, I can see how myself and, and some people that I have spoken to, it, it's like we preempt rejection from people. We expect that people are going to push us away when we acknowledge that we are true Christ followers. We expect people to reject us because of our beliefs, because of, of our value system, because of what the Bible says. And because we preempt this judgment, we choose not to bring the gospel to people. 
This is going against what the Bible teaches us. We are to bring the gospel wherever we go. And when uh, a rejection happens, and that is a when, when rejection happens, we shake the dust off our feet saying, I have done what I can. I am not complicit in the judgment that is going to befall you. Isn't that better than to understand that some people are going to face judgment and we could have done something about it? Now, I'm not, go, I'm not saying that you go around ha- holding a, a board saying a turn or burn or, or, or judgment is coming or anything like that. But what I'm saying is that how are you carrying the gospel? Are you carrying the gospel? Or are you so scared of rejection that you stop trying to carry the gospel? Something for you to think about, something that, uh, for you to, to talk about in your lift groups over the course of this week. Let's fear the judgment that people will face if they never hear the gospel more than the emotional difficulties of being rejected. That is how Jesus operated. That's how God operates. He continues to sin. He continues to try to win people over. How amazing is our God? All right, well, let's continue. We're going to jump back into verse 30. This is a famous passage about Jesus feeding the 5,000. I'm going to read this quite quickly. If you need to slow it down, uh, read it for yourself, go for it. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran off foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time, it was late in the day. So his disciples came to him. This is a remote place. They said, it is already very late. Send the people away so they can go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take more than half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have? He asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of men who had eaten was 5,000. Continuing the theme of how Jesus uh, pursues us. Jesus saw the crowds, had compassion on them. And so he proceeds to teach them. Isn't it interesting that Jesus's response uh, to his compassion was to teach, to provide guidance. Having compassion on others uh, for others doesn't necessarily mean to do something for them. Quite often it means to give them guidance and to teach them in order that they can live fully. Well, it gets late and Jesus proceeds to get them to sit down in groups of hundreds and fifties. This number uh, is significant because it echoes how Moses set up the Israelites while they were in the wilderness, making their way to the promised land. They broke themselves up into hundreds and fifties. The feeding that is to take place echoes how God fed the Israelites in the desert. 
This account is an affirmation that God continues to provide and to feed us even in times of being in the wilderness, even when we have chosen to reject him. This account ends with the disciples picking up 12 full baskets of leftovers. Each disciple had a basket that they that he collected. As mentioned in the previous weeks, 12 is a significant number. It symbolizes Israel, God's people. Again, we see uh, a picture of God's amazing provision. He's saying, this is a picture of God saying, I continue to provide for my people. I continue to show you compassion. I continue to show you that I want to give you all that you need. But interestingly, one element that is missing from this account is how the crowd's response uh, was, was absent. You see, most of the other accounts, as we've read so far, when Jesus does something truly amazing, it says that the crowds are amazed. It, it records that there was some kind of uh, uh, reaction to what Jesus had done. But Jesus had just felt, fed 5,000 men, not including women and children. There could be 10,000. There could have been a lot more people that he fed. But yet their reaction was uh, conspicuously missing in this account. We might come back to this in just a moment. So let's continue on to the final section that we're going to cover today. Mark chapter 6, 45 to 56. Again, another famous story, uh, Jesus walking on water. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up to a mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately, he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. When they crossed over, they land at Genesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got on the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout the whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. It's interesting that the last time Jesus uh, and his disciples are on a boat in the lake, it was an object lesson. I think there was another object lesson happening here. Uh, the disciples had pushed off and, and, and they, uh, well, Jesus commanded them. Remember, they were just simply following Jesus' commands. They were rowing across to the other side and they were faced with this wind that was not allowing them to move any further. And then uh, in other translations, it says when uh, Jesus went out to his disciples at the fourth watch of the night. Now, this is significant because that is the same time that the Israelites crossed the Red Sea in leaving uh, uh, Egypt. As we can remember, it was a time that God parted the Red Sea, the Israelites walked across on dry land, and then it came back over Pharaoh and his army, completely annihilating them. This time round, Jesus doesn't part the water, but he walks on it. 
Jesus's command of the elements is so complete. He can tell the, the, the storm to be calm. He can stop the winds and the waves. He can even walk on water. Jesus was showing his deity and he was showing his deity while intending, it seems, to walk past his disciples. I think this is a very powerful picture and it says that the disciples did not understand the loaves their hearts were hardened and so Jesus provides to them another object lesson he was saying you can try to row your boat across the lake but without me without God in your boat you are going to be getting nowhere and they were scared of Jesus because they did not understand that his intention was always to be with them to help them get across the lake to get to where you need to be how many of us are, are rejecting Jesus from our boats because we don't understand we get our fill of of the food that he provides which God graciously still allows us to have oh my gosh when we think about the, uh, the fact that we are in Australia and we don't really have the crazy needs at all uh, God is providing for us and in this fatness of provision sometimes we can leave Jesus out of the boat we can be even terrified and scared of Jesus because we don't understand God's heart towards us when they finally accept Jesus into the boat bit of a metaphor there when they commit to having Jesus in the boat the wind completely dies down and they reach the other side isn't it amazing how are you responding to Jesus? As I mentioned, this kind of mirrors what was happening. That God actually brought Israel down to the Red Sea. They were actually on a shorter path towards the promised land. God brought them down to prove to them that he was setting them up. He was proving to them that he was stronger than Pharaoh. He was proving to them that there was no obstacle too hard for him to overcome for us. In the same way, Jesus proves that no obstacle, no obstacle stands in our way when he is in the boat with us. Again, we are left with this question, are you fully receiving Jesus? We then have this really interesting little summary section right at the end where Jesus and the disciples, they arrive at the destination and people just flock to him. You see, they, uh, they, they, they begged uh, Jesus to even allow them to touch the edge of his cloak. This is a really interesting contrast to everything that has been happening in the chapter. Remember, there was lots of rejection happening. And even in feeding the 5,000, there was no amazement. There was no leaning in. There was no response uh, into having Jesus there with them. But the, this crowd seems to have something different about them. You see, touching the, the edge of a cloak of a Jewish man was a cultural statement to say, you are superior to me. The hem of a Jewish man's cloak had four tassels and those four tassels represented God's commands. So this person, uh, uh, people were reminded to follow God's ways. And so when someone came and touched it, wanted to touch the tassel, it was saying that you are truly following God's ways. You are therefore a superior person to me. I would just love to be able to touch the tassels of your garment. It was saying you I am submitting to. I want to submit to you. This was 
another group of people that were finally responding to Jesus. So what happened when they submitted to Jesus? They received healing. I don't think that's a coincidence. I'm not saying that the moment you say, you say this in this prayer and invite Jesus into your life, you immediately get perfect health all the time and no struggles. We, we've, we've covered that before. The, the disciples faced many obstacles, faced many storms in, in, in their journey as, as God was revealing more of himself. But these stories are put together, designed to elicit a response from us. The response that we have is either one of rejection or one of commitment. I'm hoping that as we go through this uh, book, the book of Mark is, it, it, it asks for a strong response. And I hope that at this point, you're at least thinking about your commitment to Jesus. That you're thinking about how am I leaning into Jesus? Am I just simply wanting what I want, the provision for my life so that I can go ahead and do what I want to do? Or are you actually coming to Jesus and truly submitting to him? Are you convinced by the person of Jesus? Are you committed to the person of Jesus? Some questions for you to think about. Let me just pray for you. Dear God, I, I pray that the revelation of who you are, uh, of all that you do for us, your heart for us, is coming through these messages. As we read through the book of Mark, we read about your amazing teaching, about your amazing works. I pray that we receive you wholeheartedly. That God, it might be hard to trust you sometimes. It might take courage, but I pray for that courage. I pray for that kind of faith that allows us to be drawn deeper in relationship with you. Thank you, Jesus. I pray this in your name. Amen. Well, thank you so much for listening. Make sure you head into your lift groups this week. Uh, we've got some discussion questions to help you deepen your understanding or, or just to exchange ideas uh, and, and understanding and wisdom that you're getting through the series. Thanks so much, everyone. Be blessed. Mm -hmm.